0: Welcome to Rock RIT. Apologies for the longer than usual delay. It's been a busy season here and I hope you've been well since our last one. This represents something of a landmark for us, episode 30. And our guest for the occasion is Bruce Adams. And Bruce is the author of a fascinating book called You're With Stupid, Cranky, Chicago, and the Reinvention of Indie Music that's been getting loads of rave reviews lately. The book documents Bruce's 13-year tenure at Cranky Records, the experimental label he started with Joel Leschke in 1993 in Chicago. And more broadly, the book is about the fertile Chicago underground music scene of that period and how Cranky, among many others, helped free indie rock from its provincialism to embrace more diverse sonic possibilities. A good deal of my listening died in the early 2000s consisted of Cranky Fair, and Bruce was someone I'd corresponded with a bit in the connection to my old fanzine, so naturally, I jumped at the chance to chat with him about his book, which also touches on his time at Touch and Go Records and Cargo Records and Distribution. And since this is a podcast called Rock Rit, you know there has to be a fanzine connection in there somewhere. And since the late 90s, I've been an admirer of Bruce's music writing in Your Flesh magazine. He wrote these sharp, pithy, profoundly helpful reviews on all kinds of music, but especially experimental and even jazz records. Bruce also wrote for Chicago's Butt Rag fanzine, and something I learned in our interview, uh, he fr- he wrote for the first couple issues of Motor Booty Magazine when it was more of a straight up fanzine rather than the satire mag uh, we know it for. So who knew that? Anywho's, please enjoy this chat with the one and only Bruce Adams on Rock RIT. You've been doing a lot of interviews, and you have you've got a book tour coming up. I know you've done some dates. You're in an you're at a Ann Arbor Library, and mm-hmm. you've got some interviews coming up next week. Is it strange? to be doing this, Bruce, given that when you were with Cranky, you guys had a no interview policy, kind of, with, with a few exceptions here and there, but you guys were, were a bit protective and, and cagey about talking about Cranky.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually weird in a different way. I, I tell all my musician friends that I understood their processes and their challenges from an intellectual perspective, yeah, you record, you write something, you record it. You get an artwork. It comes out, then you go out. You go on tour. You get reviews. Now I have an emotional and visceral understanding of what that what that is like. The interviews and stuff don't bother me. To me, it's all just uh, shooting the breeze about music, which, as my wife says, I love to do, and I need people to do it with. So that part's a lot of fun. The traveling, uh, I didn't think it would. I didn't think it would take as much out of me as it has, but I suspect that has to do more with uh, my advanced years and my uh, basically being a homebody.
0: <laughs> Your wife was the one who encouraged you to write this book. I understand. Yes,
1: almost from the minute I started, uh, I left Cranky. Uh, my wife was uh, very assertive in her beliefs that the story had to be told and that, uh, I should be the one telling it. And so uh, periodically she would encourage me to do that. My mind though, was always set on getting, uh, not working on spec. You know, I didn't want to do all the work involved and then say here, what do you think Mm -hmm. to a bunch of people? Uh, so the opportunity came along to write to propose something for the University of Texas press. And I was fortunate enough that they said yes. And uh, so the process went under the underway from there. I also have a I was looking through some old emails. I found an email from one of my brother-in-laws saying he really ought to write a book. So that whole side of the family often works in collusion, I
0: thought <laughs> Little nudge from your wife to to your brother-in-law, maybe, and uh... Well well it worked and, and the result is great. I'm really grateful you wrote this and I know I'm not alone. What what was it like revisiting these things from 20, 30 years ago?
1: It was interesting because distance uh, gives some a different perspective. Um, what was interesting to me was in the uh, October of 2019 I went to Portland uh, to spend some time with Joel Leski, my former partner, and a few other people, and the whole process—it was as if I had just talked to them yesterday. The re- reconnecting with a lot of the people that I had worked with, and now when I go out on when I go out and uh, do events, I like I, the other week in Ann Arbor, I uh, I got to reconnect with some people I worked with in a record store like 40 years ago, and it's like a day hasn't passed. Wow. It's been it's it's been fantastic, really energizing and affirming.
0: I, I'm sure you had a good idea of where you wanted the book to go, but maybe just in the course of your research and writing and thinking about these things, were you surprised at what you came up with? And and maybe maybe your your take and thoughts on these things has has changed or or it has.
1: Been- when when you're not uh, personally day to day hour to hour involved in something, the uh, some of the emotional, the emotional resonances change a bit. Also, through the process of writing and having two great editors and having some uh having some readers help me out, I came to uh I came to put more of myself in the book. My initial reaction, my initial approach was, you know, I have some training in journalism, and my initial approach was you know just the facts. We're gonna lay down the facts. And as as again my wife reminded me that would have been too much of a baseball card approach and some of my uh some of my advisors and readers did the same thing so the the challenge for me and this goes back to how Joel and I approached running cranky the challenge for me was to put more of a personal perspective in there really to give people uh hopefully more of a visceral feel of what it was like say to go out to a nightclub in Wicker Park in 1991, as opposed to a simple, you know, as opposed to everything ending up looking like a disguise page or something, which I did not want. I wanted uh, as much as I could to put in uh, some personal stuff that would that would give people an idea of place and time. Mm-hmm. Now, I did a I did an interview with Jim D. Rogatis and Greg Cott. A couple months ago, and they were both music writers for the Sun Times and the Tribune, respectively. And they and uh, Jim, who was never one uh, to spare someone's tender feelings, said, "You know, Frankie really was a uh, an outlier, right?" And it's true. You know, we we were the label still is a relatively small, relatively. specialist label and so to really to really get the story right of cranky you had to you had to frame it uh, and and put the label in context alongside everything else that was happening in chicago and let's face it a lot of people aren't interested in sort of the nuts and bolts of music distribution or running a record label or whatever You need to put things in a setting that uh, people can associate with and draw draw in more people. That was part of the intention in putting the book together.
0: Do you think Cranky being an outlier was still part of that kind of cross-pollination of music genres and scenes and eclecticism that was happening? Maybe a broadening of what was safe for indie rock?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know what you're trying to get at. Just as an example, the first le bradford show in chicago mm-hmm. they were opening for archers of loaf All right now i
0: classic indie rock
1: classic indie rock right right down to the lyrics she's an indie rocker nothing's going to stop her right they almost prototypical that was uh, what we were working with at the time where we were working uh the context of things and so I will, you know, I will argue that Cranky in general and LeBradford in particular were really involved in sort of driving a wedge into that and opening it up uh, for more, more voices, more uh, more approaches to things. We I think we were a part of that, and Joel and I personally were a part of it in two senses because we were also working at a distributor. And so I was selling records to stores, he was working with labels. And so we were part of a process in which tastes were expanding, and access to to different types of music and different genres of music was expanding prodigiously, not just in Chicago but around the country. And so, you know, the Cranky Chica- uh, was an operator in that process.
0: I found it interesting that you you and Joel both came with a lot of record label music industry experience before you started cranky and a lot of what you put into the label had to do with you you came up with these commandments of what you will not do Mm -hmm. based on mistakes you saw was that were there some exceptions to that it sounds like touch and go maybe gave you a model of some positive things to do but but it sounds like on the whole you were just seeing people operating in ways that just were not prudent
1: yeah we were uh we we had a a fly on the wall of you working at a distributor of uh, how the organization we were working for, Cargo, was sort of squandering their position. Other record labels were uh, indulging in uh, some tactics and techniques that we didn't feel were uh, sustainable in the long run. And uh, just in general, in Chicago, looking around, seeing uh, you know, seeing bands being uh, courted by the major labels, seeing you know, seeing bands that had one maybe two seven-inch singles, signing with Capitol Records or something, it was uh, it was mind-boggling. And then there were some there were some aspects that were just pure personal aesthetics, pure uh, personal cantankerousness, you know, like. Uh, the, the commandment against band photos on an album cover. Don't like just, it. Just Don't a tasting.
0: It's tacky. Is that it? Like few can pull it off, really.
1: Few can pull it off. You have to be. You have to be a pretty. Well, like I say in the book, "This Is Our Music" by the Ornette Coleman Quartet, mm-hmm. and say the first couple of Ramones albums. You're not going to get a better band photo than that. Yeah, yeah. You're just not going to do it. <laughs> you know many 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 are called but few are chosen <laughs> uh, or lyrics you know i hate mm. lyric sheets the joy of listening to music is uh coming up with your own impressions mm. about uh, lyrically musically the other thing is i think um this is a bitch i have against a lot of music writers i'm not an english ta you know where a lot of people get hung up on lyrics as the as the primary expression of music, and I mm-hmm. don't, you know, I don't look at that at all. So I don't, uh, I don't consider about those things or worry about things. Or I haven't since I was about eighteen.
0: There's certain kind of hooks that uh, that people look for that maybe Cranky doesn't offer to the listener. So lyrics, I mean, m- many of your bands don't even have lyrics because it's instrumental music. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the musicians themselves look pretty normal. And I think you make the point in the book or somebody does that cranky artists and that kind of music is not really connected to a particular subculture. None of I these other like political a... fashion things are there to kind of draw people in. It's The music's got to stand on its own, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think that was also a time when those things were beginning to matter less and less, right, the the visual clues of a subculture. We're beginning to disappear. When I, when I worked at touch and go, I would go out and about in a leather motorcycle jacket and I had a chain wallet by 1994. Not so much for me personally. And I think you could see it, you know, as a person, part of it was uh, with the alt rock explosion or whatever, the more and more people being attracted to underground music based on what they heard from Nirvana or whatever, and coming to it without, the uniform. Or I read I read something the other week with a pavement reunion and someone saying you could tell who the original fans were because they were all men with chinos and boat shoes. <laughs> you know, and that um that those those sort of markers uh meant less and less in a lot of ways at the time, and we were we were part of that as well, the the subcultural aspects. We're changing in a way um, that continues now, and now it's you know as far as I can see, it's mix and, mix and match for better or for worse.
0: Even even with this kind of essentialism and simplicity, that sort of became the cranky aesthetic and and kind of personality. At the same time, there was there was this minimalism about not just the music, but about your approach to putting out music. Uh, the cranky like those slogans. I, I was even just on the cranky website earlier today and just looked at like the demo policy. and it's it's downright unfriendly. There was like this aloofness and kind of you you, you use the word kind of like bordering on arrogance in the book. was that was that sort of a function of your personalities or just yeah, just a, a bit of a... a
1: a function of our personalities, perhaps uh, an exaggeration of our personalities? When I worked at a record store, and maybe if you've done retail work, you've experienced this. A door isn't working. And mm-hmm. you put a sign on the door that says use other door. And then yeah. you watch person after person walk into that door. Look at the sign. Go, yeah. oh, move over. Sometimes you gotta be brutal uh, with people. Demo policy is a great example of that. You no, know, email. I, I had my own little record label for the early part of the the 2010s i still get demos from
0: people i remember that label and i tried to find information about it online and i couldn't but i do remember that label yeah so i took, the, still I mean, finding I took it.
1: the i took the website down i you know, there's still stuff on bandcamp i st- i still get demos from people yeah. i still get you know people offering to do album art and stuff it's like my dude this label has been dormant for 10 <laughs> 15 years you know do a little homework.
0: Jeez. Cruel to be kind kind of thing.
1: Uh, just, uh, you know, sometimes you have to state the obvious. Yeah. Re- repeatedly.
0: <laughs> you mentioned Jim Duragatis, and I think you were having a conversation with him maybe early in cranky years when he uh-huh. was trying to get on the mailing list and showing curiosity about some of the bands. And in that conversation, I think you said you've kind of got to prove your worthiness, something yeah. along those lines. Tell me about that. Is is that because... There's a limited appeal. Not everybody's going to get it. They've got to show that they're actually T- tell me. It it just seems oh, yeah. counterintuitive to me. So tell me a bit about that.
1: It's very simple, really. It's, I had a limited supply of promo CDs. Right. This, I'm mm-hmm. going to do the same thing with the book. My wife will say, "Do you want to do you want to send a book to so and so?" And I tell her, "This is a working book. This book has a job. You know, the job is." Uh, The job is to sell more books. In terms of uh, promos, promo CDs, you know, it would have been nice to have Jim DeRogatis have tender and warm feelings toward Cranky and be supportive. It was even nicer to see a review in the Chicago Sun-Times. And so I knew writers and fanzine, people who had fanzines and people who were supporting the label, uh, buyers at record stores, people who were doing things on their own dime. And so all I uh, wanted to see from people with larger, working at larger organizations with more resources was a bit of a commitment. Dinner and dancing first, and then we'll consummate (laughs) the relationship. And, you know, as Jim said in the book, and as he said, talking to him, he said, that's, you know, that's no problem. I've got five Stone Temple Pilots promos sitting on my desk. I'll just go down to Reckless Records and make a trade. And there we go. He got it. He understood it. There there was that attitude. I said, you know, we simply I simply had to see the results or a commitment to people. I couldn't throw things around willy nilly hoping that. uh, somebody would like it, something and do something with it.
0: It sounds like you went in fully knowing the commercial limitations of the kind of music you were dealing with. At the same time, at least it seems to me like the the label's ascent was was pretty quick. Were you surprised at all that uh, that it caught on so well with indie rock and non-indie rock people?
1: Given that I was not surprised that people would respond to the music. I thought, hmm. we were, I thought we were putting out great, great music. Uh, that did not surprise me. And I, I should say the ascent, the relatively quick ascent from my point of view was the ascent from having the record label, working on the record label part-time in my house on evenings and weekends, and being able to do it full-time, which took about seven years. We were very careful with our resources and we marshaled our resources very carefully and we paid ourselves last. That's how that worked out. I mean, I knew, I, I thought there was a pretty good chance that people would like Le Bradford and Jessamine and that, and the uh, Bowery electric and all those bands. And it worked out what turbocharged everything for us was being able to work with low. And then with Godspeed, you black emperor, because then we had two bands that were touring a lot that had a, a, a different sort of appeal. To people. Uh, in the case of Loa Band that was already established, had a you know a commercial profile. And that's they became the horses that pulled the wagon.
0: Signing them allowed you to move full time into cranky, but also to take a chance on other bands that maybe you might not have.
1: Yep. Yep. Although we did uh we did, and I know Joel is to this day, we're very conscious about now flooding the market this is something uh, in the book that Patrick Monaghan talks about with his experience working at the wax tracks record store and the rise of the rise of wax tracks where all of a sudden you would see, you know, five, eight releases in a month, just a uh, overwhelming the marketplace. Well, that was not, that was not something that, that we wanted to do. We were very cognizant of that. And so it, we always sort of, uh, you know, put ahead a tight leash on the, uh, the A and R, or the rep, you know, whatever you want to call it, the catalogs, keeping things under control.
0: Were you guys always relatively on the same page, or were there times where you would disagree?
1: There were disagreements. I think I, uh, based on my my experiences at Touch and Go and just taste in general, I think I was more of a, a loud rock guy than Joel was. Although Joel, like, was a big Mono Man fan, big. Very knowledgeable about about the more garage rock side of things. the dis, The disagreements were few and far between, so I think we identified our niche fairly quickly, and we and we stuck with it. Look at other record labels, you know, like let's say how Thrill Jockeys turned out over the last five or ten years. They're now a, from my perspective, they're a general interest record label. They can do abstract German electronics. They can do uh, a band like Oozing Wound. <laughs> you know, they cover a wider spectrum. Cranky never did that. We were very happy with the spectrum when we were working within, and there was a lot of. Uh, we thought there was a lot of freedom in that. We stayed inside our lane. We didn't venture too far, and we didn't. Nor did we want to do uh, like sub labels or spin off labels or anything like that for us to focus was on if this particular band or this performer works within these parameters, that's what, that's where we want, that's the people we want to work with.
0: Yeah. I respect that a lot. I know a lot of people do as well. Just finding what you're good at, having some constraints, finding freedom within that and just focusing on doing that the best.
1: That was the, that was the plan. That was the ideal, you know, and, um, then and now, I think
0: the label holds to that really well. We're talking about publications and and music writers. Can you think of, like a couple particular publications or writers that really got the cranky aesthetic early on and and understood what you're up to?
1: Scott Rutherford at Speed Kills, really understood it. Mark Masters, then and now writes for a variety of publications. He got it. Bill Meyer got it. Gail O'Hara, at Chick Factor. Mm-hmm. Was uh, present at the first LeBradford show in New York City. So she sensed something there, saw something there. Like tons of little fanzines. I they, I did the interview uh, in Ann Arbor with Christopher Porter, uh, who went by Chip in those days, and he had a little fanzine called Audrey's Diary. He understood things pretty well. He He understood what we're trying to get at. It's
0: it seems safe. a lot on the fanzine level.
1: Yeah, and that was a special
0: appreciation for Yeah,
1: that was a that was a special time in terms of the variety of voices. For me doing uh, doing publicity, I I really looked at the people that I thought would be the up and comers, and people whose writing and whose commitment I thought would carry on above and beyond their fanzine. Oh, I should I should mention uh, Ptolemaic Terrascope.
0: Yeah, big, yeah. Phil. Big Phil McMullen.
1: Phil, Phil McMullen, big supporters of ours right from the get go. Really not only just understood what Cranky was trying to do, but saw it uh in a in a bigger in a bigger sense, was able to make the connections with other record labels and other performers doing other things. Yeah, so there was a there were we had a lot of supporters early on. Uh I was I was really cognizant cognizant of getting the right people, the right recordings. This is something I'd learned to touch ago. and go. Uh, and I was also very cognizant of the totem pole, you know of the larger publications, the options, the magnets, the wire at the top who who could be friendly, who could be uh, supportive or who could completely overlook what we were doing. And then uh, then as now, we didn't advertise a lot. We spent a little bit of ad money with the people that were uh, supportive of us. Oh, I should say Accelerator Magazine in San Francisco, which was a, a dance, focused on dance music, but their writers and editors got how Cranky fit into, the, into that side of things as well. They really understood the, the atmospheric cinematic side of things and were very supportive as well
0: hmm. Did that surprise you that people in electronic music world were? Uh...
1: It did not, because uh, one of the lessons I learned from Touch and Go was a surprising. I was surprised by the number of people who were into heavy metal and extreme music who loved like Killdozer or the Laughing Hyenas. And it it was a lesson to me that people's tastes are wider than you might expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, they could see elements of certain things in the touch and go music that resonated with them uh, in the ways that the heavier, you know, that things within their genre preference resonated with them. People see the similarities; they see threads continuing through different types of music. So, Accelerator did not surprise me at all. In a good way, it did, because we very much appreciated the support. The fact that someone who, say, liked uh, Autekker would like uh, LeBradford did not surprise me, because I yep. liked Autekker. You know, it worked yep. It worked that way for me, too.
0: We're talking about fanzines, and, and I want to ask you a little bit about fanzines that you wrote for, Bruce. I think I first came to know about you through your writings for Your Flesh magazine. Mm-hmm. Your association with them goes back... Like to oh, the late 80s, I think, right?
1: Goes back uh, to the late 80s to Toronto, Canada. Toronto okay,
0: tell tell me about that.
1: I was uh, I was roading for the laughing hyenas and they played a show at Lee's Palace with Killdozer, and Peter Davis, the editor and publisher of Your Flesh, was roading for Killdozer and booking them. No so way. we met we met behind the merch table and uh, struck up a connection then and I had done a a little bit of writing for uh, done a couple of record reviews for Motor Booty, which was a fanzine based in Ann Arbor. I was mm-hmm. working in a record store, and Peter basically said if I'd be willing to submit some reviews, I said sure.
0: Your flesh had a had a great variety of voices, and and yours really stuck out to me for for a couple of reasons. Your prose was really straight, like it was just like pithy. You weren't trying to be like have this gonzo wild kind of Richard Meltzer style prose and you you just did a good job of pinpointing what made a record work like what element kind of stood out for you did were you conscious of these goals when you're writing that's that was my impression you yeah kind of I get was. to the heart of uh, heart of an album
1: yeah I was I uh had a lot of respect and affection for uh, the Byron Coley forced exposure school learned a lot, learned a lot about uh, bands and music from there, but I did not want to write that way. I had a did not have a master's degree in journalism. So uh, I know that I know that had a lot of influence on uh, by writing, uh, you know keeping things simple, direct, action verbs. Uh, but I really I really wanted as best as I could with my limited musical understanding because I'm not trained in music. Uh, with my limited understanding to uh, hone in on what I liked or didn't like about a particular work. And as time went on, I made more and more of an effort at your flesh to write about the things I liked. I mean, the Mm -hmm. magazine had a a wonderful jagged edge to it. Um, You know, they weren't afraid of calling a spade a spade. Uh, a lot of the other writers you know went to things with hammers and tongs and over time i realized you know if i'm going to be spending time for this which i'm really not getting paid for except in free records uh, i'm going to focus on the things i like and push those uh and you know ignore the things i'm not interested in so that that process was important to my formation as a writer also you know, I worked at I worked at retail and then at a distributor for so long. I had to I had to write you know little paragraphs about various things that were coming through the warehouse at cargo to go out and be sold. And in that format, everything's great.
0: Yeah, you know, it's got to be absolutely.
1: It's got to be good. You don't say. Well, their first record was really better. Uh uh-uh. uh <laughs> You know, um, and that and to my mind, there's nothing wrong about that. You know, I, I read a lot of the reviews on BoomCat, the BoomCat website, which covers a lot of dance music, electronic music. And from time to time, I hear people pitch that, oh, that you know, this record isn't as good as it was meant to be. You know, as I said, it was on BoomCat. It's like, that's not their job. Not, their job is not to accurately pour, uh, predict what you're going to like or not like. job, yeah. You know the object is to point out the things that make this record interesting and that might be worthy of your money. So I was doing two things at one time, right? Five days a week, I was trying to find selling points for various things. And then in the evenings or the weekends, I was writing about things for your flesh or, you know, trying to arrange interviews and things like that. And it was at a certain point I was like, I've, I've got to, I've got to take what I'm doing here and apply it over here in some way that makes the voice, uh, interesting to read and, you know, somewhat reliable from a consumer perspective. And, you know, so I think I, hopefully I struck that balance.
0: I think so. And what you're saying also makes sense. And I think explains your voice kind of stood out as a, maybe like a more generous voice. You weren't looking to have fun and just dump water and and you know, as you said, go with oh, a hammer. Yeah.
1: I, I'm sure I you had some
0: fun and, and I did you know... my share of
1: that, but yeah. as time went on, uh I did less and less of it. Yeah. Because it uh, you know, part of its psychic or, or whatever you want to say it, uh, uh, part of it's like, you know, save that talk for the bar stool.
0: How how did a guy with a masters in journalism end up roadieing for laughing hyenas? I want to hear a bit about that.
1: Oh, well, I was between situations mm-hmm. in Ann Arbor. Uh, so I I uh, thought, well, I get a, let's see if I can get a job at my favorite record store. I get the job at my favorite record store. And I'm like, all right, we'll see until something better comes. Along. Well, at you know, a certain point, I'm enjoying the job so much, my coworkers so much, that I'm not really looking around for anything else. I think I had seen The Laughing Highness once. I was certainly very aware of Negative Approach, very aware of uh, Larissa Stirlarchuk and uh, L7. And I saw that they had a new band, and uh, John was putting up flyers uh, in the on the cork board in the store, and I struck up a conversation with him. And then later on, they, they were playing a show with Ignition
0: from DC. D- DC band, sure.
1: And my job at the store was to, uh, to work consignment for local bands. And so, um, Larissa was there and she introduced me to Dante from Ignition and he had a single with him. I had enough leeway at the job to be able to buy the singles and stock them in the store, even though they weren't a local band. And so we did that. And then, uh, you know, eventually I was, uh, I was invited over to the laughing hyenas house. Spent some time hanging out with them. Got to watch them rehearse, which was uh, an incredible experience. And, and over time, uh, you know, they took me out on some sh- took me out on some local shows. We did a lot of shows with Decroyson hmm. around. Uh, you know, either going with Decroyson, you know, meeting De Kreutzen in Chicago, or going to Madison, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, the other side. Uh, the laughing hyenas had a big fan base in Pittsburgh and Youngstown, Ohio, of all places in the world. Hmm. Yeah, uh, decaying industrial cities loved the laughing Hyenas.
0: <laughs> yeah, that makes sense.
1: Loved what they were putting down. Um, so it just it just turned out as time as time went on, I kind of took on more and more touring responsibilities for them. And then at a certain point, we went through Chicago, played a show with the rape man and urge overkill in a bar called the Cubby Bear, which Sue Miller was booking. Uh, this is before she went to work at Lounge Axe. Uh, and I stayed overnight at Touch and Go House. And the next day I went to uh, to a job interview at Kaleidoscope and displays. I was you know, ready to move to Chicago, to a bigger town. And that, in turn, got me a job at uh, Kaleidoscope. I was. Uh, I got to know Corey and Lisa Rusk and started helping them with various things and slowly integrated myself into helping them out uh, in the evenings. And then, eventually, uh, I made the full-fledged transition to Touch and Go. And at the same time, or around that time, Laughing Hyenas in DeCroitz did a tour supporting Sonic Youth. Uh, and I went out, went out east and back with them on that tour. So it was a it was a great experience. So many, so many vivid, vivid memories. And I uh, met so many people, many adventures. You know, I think I write in the book about the first, I missed the first Laughing Hyenas show at CVGV's because I was sitting in their van with a baseball bat. To make sure that no one came in trying to steal anything.
0: That's nuts. Were the tourists and kind of the Laughing of people as as wild, maybe, and and unhinged as as people might imagine, or or were you surprised given their maybe reputations? And
1: I had spent time sp- with them in their house, you know, doing really mundane things like. You know, if you spend any time with John brannon at all, you're going to have to watch some uh, Alice Cooper videos. <laughs> um, doing things like uh, making crap macaroni and cheese and tea with Larissa. It was uh, it was incredibly homey and nice. And then you go downstairs in the basement and watch them rehearse and watch all hell, you know, watch a hell gate open up and this incredible band uh perform and hone their material that was a very instructive process for me i had never really seen how bands put music together and they were in they were uh for all the wildness of their performance and their reputation as musicians they are incredibly disciplined and focused on what they were doing you know john and john and larissa uh were drug addicts at that point mm-hmm. and so i had to uh absorb that, come to terms with it, and decide that uh, this is one part of their lives uh, that affected me in some ways and most ways didn't, that that I was not going to change that behavior. I was not capable or willing to do that. And then it was either, uh, you know, accept that as part of what they were doing. It didn't harm me. It didn't harm other people. And, uh, you know, I accepted that as part of the deal.
0: Thanks to Bruce for being game to gab with us. You're with Stupid, Cranky Chicago, and the Reinvention of Indie Music is out now on University of Texas Press and available wherever you get your books. Do check it out. It's highly recommended. And thank you, as always, for checking us out. You could have spent this time reading to your children or learning a new skill, yet you chose to spend it with us. We appreciate it greatly. You can connect with us on Twitter. Our handle is at RockRitPod. If you're a fan of the show, please, please consider leaving a review and rating. We'd be most grateful. Take good care and catch you next time.